Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 234, The Sons of Rogery and Athelred's Beautiful Hair. This show is ad-free due to member support, and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts. You can get instant access to all the members' episodes by signing up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. And thank you very much to Jack, Anne, and Holly for signing up already. This episode has been difficult to write. In fact, the last several have been difficult. And it all comes down to issues of time. Not space-time flexing due to gravitational pull, and issues of whether a minute for Alfred in Wessex was the same as a minute for someone climbing the Alps. Just good old-fashioned questions of timing. What goes first? When does it happen? What happens next and when? The problem is that history, at its root, is a story. And a story generally needs a sequence of events. I mean, sure, some storytellers like William S. Burroughs have completely cast off the idea of a sequence and have done so to great effect. But in general, to tell a story that people can understand, A needs to be followed by B, which needs to be followed by C. However... Occasionally, we have moments in history where we know the events, we just don't know which one is A, which is B, and which is C. Nor do we know when any of them are happening. And that's a nightmare for a storyteller. For us, the 880s are essentially like sitting down and watching Twilight Breaking Dawn Part 2, sober, and without watching any of the previous films. Who is that weird girl from the Uncanny Valley? Why is Michael Sheen laughing like that? Why do people seem to really like this bland girl who just glares all the time? And if you find yourself in that situation, it is understandable if you're confused, angry, and wondering what decisions you've made in your life that led you here. And basically, that's the 880s. The problem for us is that we have certain events that are more or less set in a concrete chronology, with even dates attached. But... We also know that certain things are definitely going to happen, but we have no idea of the chronology for them, and we have no dates. And that means that they can happen at any point within those concrete moments, and they can happen in any order, and they might even happen all at roughly the same time for all we know. And unfortunately, those unmoored events are the most consequential facts for the 880s. And when they occur, can wildly change how we interpret the remainder of circumstances of that decade, and even beyond. And I did try and tackle this in the members episode I mentioned last week. And honestly, I was hoping that I could just dodge most of these issues the way many scholars have. But the more I wrestled with the script, the more it became clear that this lack of proper sequencing during this critical period of about 11 years is going to be a problem that we will have to discuss as it comes up until we just get through it. So over the next episode or two, our uncertain story is going to get a little more uncertain. I'll do my best to guide us through it, and I'm going to move as quickly as I can, since dwelling too much on these questions will likely drive us both crazy. But the only way to tell this story in an honest way is to be clear about the fact that we don't know how all the pieces of the puzzle fit together. And depending on how we connect them, we can end up with really different pictures. So when we left off, we saw Alfred fully demonstrating that he was cut from the same cloth as his grandfather. Like King Egbert, 
Alfred saw opportunity in disaster, and he moved quickly to further consolidate power. And in doing so, he was positioning himself to better expand his sphere of influence. If things at home were stable, and if his military was reorganizing to better be able to deal with the Scandinavian threat, then he would be able to dedicate time and resources to influencing his neighbors. Alfred, much like his ancestors, appears to have paid attention to the way the Carolingians operated, and intended to expand both his borders and also the scope of his power. And that right there is anchor number one for us, so put a pin in it. Whatever else we're uncertain of, we know that Alfred was working to expand his own personal power and the power of Wessex. Enter into this scene, Athelred of Mercia. As we discussed in both the main show and in the members' episodes, we aren't entirely sure when he formally took control of Mercia, nor are we sure who was responsible for his rise to power. And of course, we aren't entirely sure what his dynasty was because we don't know where he came from. But it is notable that while the Thanes of the Sea dynasty, the likely dynasty of the now deposed or deceased Cheowulf II of Mercia, were eliminated from court, much of the rest of the Mercian council, as well as the ecclesiastical council, remained. With the exception of a few new council members that appear to have had a link to Alfred's family, there wasn't a surge of new dynastic members on the Mercian council. To put it another way, there doesn't appear to have been a purge and subsequent stacking of the court in the manner that Alfred carried out things. And that suggests that however Athelred of Mercia rose to power, it was largely acceptable to the major movers and shakers of Mercia. However, some scholars point out that this lack of a major purge could indicate that the kingdom was moving away from dynastic feuds, and they argue that this could be the result of Alfred's influence. Now, personally, I feel that's a bit of a stretch, because the evidence suggests to me that Alfred doesn't appear to have had any issues with dynastic infighting, so long as he was on the winning side. Additionally, giving Alfred that much credit completely discounts the entirely plausible explanation that Mercia, which had been repeatedly smashed by Scandinavian invaders and had also suffered under a puppet king, simply realized that they had bigger fish to fry and no longer had the interest or energy for internal power struggles. There's no need for Alfred's intervention for the Mercian elderman to decide to place country over party. However, you already know that even this depends on when exactly Athelred rose to power, and at what point he decided to submit his authority to Alfred. Because that did happen. But the sequence of those events has an enormous impact on exactly who was behind this cessation of internecine mercy and conflict. But despite that uncertainty, we do have another anchor here. It was in Alfred's interest to have a state that ultimately answered to him to act as a buffer between himself and the Vikings. Halfdan and Guthrum had both exploited the fractured nature of the southern Anglo-Saxon kingdoms to great effect. And Alfred was working quickly to turn the south into a fortress. So if he could bring Mercia under his umbrella, then Wessex stood a greater chance at countering any future threat from the north. Or possibly the east. I mean, Alfred was making a pretty big gamble with Guthrum Athelstan, and I'm sure he knew it. Could he really expect this converted pagan and his followers to remain loyal? The bonds of godfather to godson were powerful, 
But in years past, Alfred had seen Guthrum violate sacred oaths that were bound by both the gods of the pagans and the Anglo-Saxons. So this was an open question as the Danes marched into East Anglia and took possession of the kingdom in 880. And perhaps it was under a cloud of anxiety that Alfred and Guthrum signed the treaty, splitting Mercia between them. Though, that too would have been an enormous gamble, since the treaty would have essentially expanded Guthrum's holdings, and Alfred would basically have been hoping that that grant of land would quench the Danish forces' desire for territory. But what if it wasn't enough? And there's something else to consider. How much control would Guthrum Athelstan be able to wield over the Northmen in East Anglia? Even if the forces of Guthrum Athelstan were truly tamed, could the same thing be said of the remainder of the opportunistic Vikinger bands in East Anglia? And again, we genuinely don't know when the treaty was signed, so it's possible that the treaty was signed before Guthrum Athelstan even marched on East Anglia. It's also possible that the treaty wasn't signed for another 11 years, long after Mercia had come under Alfred's sphere of influence. But no matter what order these events played out in, Alfred was making a really risky bet here. And I think this gives you a good sense of how, despite his victory, Alfred was kind of up against a wall. He needed breathing room. He needed time to construct those defenses we talked about last episode. He needed time to ensure that his political flank was truly secure. And so, while there are some incredibly pro-Alfred scholars who want to insist that he was playing three-dimensional chess, and that everything that was happening here was all part of a complicated plan, it's just as possible, if not more so, that he was simply in a situation where he had little choice but to take a chance and hope for the best. Now, the year after Guthrum went into East Anglia, so 881, we have another event that we can firmly pin to our timeline. It was on that year that Mercia crossed Offa's dike and marched into the kingdom of Gwyneth. And the question you should be asking is why? And the answer lies with Rodri Maurer, Rodri the Great, whose reign is kind of the linchpin for this entire story. Rodri was a contemporary of Alfred's father, King Athelwulf. He came to rule over the northwestern Welsh kingdom of Gwyneth in 844. At the time, despite its storied history as the kingdom that briefly conquered Northumbria under the rule of Cadwallon, Gwyneth had generally fallen into the recesses of history. Their territories were small, and their influence was slim. However, Rodri was an incredibly effective leader. The first hint at his abilities likely came in the 850s, when Vikings working under a man named Gorm invaded North Wales, and pretty soon thereafter, they were crushed by Rodri and his army. The victory was so overwhelming that we don't see any indications of a Viking attack upon North Wales for around 20 more years. In addition to his abilities in the field, Rodri was also a brilliant statesman, and through his actions, he was able to rapidly expand the borders of his holdings. First, he brought the central border kingdom of Powys under his control by exerting political influence following the death of its leader, who happened to be Rodri's uncle. And then he married his sister to Angharad, the ruler of the western central kingdom of Ceredigion. And this was critical because that marriage gave him a claim on the kingdom, provided, of course, that Angharad died without having any kids. And as luck would have it, in 872, 
Ang Harad mysteriously drowned, and Rodri was there, ready to inherit. The sequence of events seems fairly suspicious, but in the end, by gaining control of Caradigian, Rodri had control of all of northern and central Wales. Other annals indicate that roughly around the same time, Gwyneth was engaged in a bitter struggle against Viking raiders on Anglesey. And much like the invasion 20 years earlier, Rodri and the army of Gwyneth eventually stood triumphant over the Northmen. But here's where it starts to get a little bit messy. See, the thing is that the Danes weren't the only threat to Rodri's rule. For generations, there have been bloodshed between the British kingdoms of the West and the kingdom of Mercia. The days of cross-border alliances that had marked the reign of King Penda were in the past. There was just too much bad blood now. And we're told that at some point in the 870s, some say that it was in 873, some say that it was in 877, and something we might never know. But at some point in the 870s, the Welsh chronicle known as the Chronicle of the Princes tells us that an army of Saxons invaded Gwyneth. And Rodri the Great, as well as his brother, or maybe his son, depending on what source you're reading, were there, waiting. And by this point, Alfred was ruling over Wessex. But, given that Alfred was generally either really busy with Guthrum, or trying to rebuild his bloodied and broken kingdom following his fights with Halfdan and Guthrum, it's thought that these Saxons that the Chronicle of the Princes refers to weren't the West Saxons. But rather, it likely refers to their ancient enemy, the Mercians. And that does make sense. This fight likely took place squarely within the reign of King Cholwulf II. And he was certainly in a position to make war upon his neighbors. I mean, he didn't need to worry about fighting against the Danes, since he had a friendly relationship with the biggest, baddest Dane in the south, Guthrum. And by fighting Gwyneth, he stood a chance of adding some legitimacy to his rule, which he likely would have sorely needed, as everyone would have known that he was placed on the throne by a pagan raider. Do you remember what eventually led to Rome colonizing Britain? And I know I'm doing a major pop quiz here, but do you remember who it was? Do you remember what happened there? It was Emperor Claudius, who was feeling pretty insecure about his rule because his nephew, Emperor Caligula, had just been murdered by the same people who placed him on the throne the Praetorian Guard. And launching wars is an old and very popular tactic of insecure rulers throughout history. So for that reason, many scholars suspect that it was Cholwulf II of Mercia who launched a war against Gwyneth. Unfortunately for Gwyneth, their struggles against the Northmen had taken a serious toll, and it appears that Rodri Maurer's luck had finally run out. In this pivotal battle, Rodri was killed, along with his brother, or maybe his son. But Rodri was a Welshman who liked to keep busy, so he had sons. Lots of sons. And according to tradition, Anarod ap Rodri, Rodri Maurer's eldest son, took the throne, and founded the dynasty of Aberfrau, named for the royal village on Anglesey that was their seat of power. But despite taking control... It's unlikely that Anaraud ruled independently. The incursion and defeat of Rodri was likely a part of a campaign to extend Mercian influence into his western neighbor. 
We've seen this play out time and time again. One kingdom invades another, defeats it, allows a king to sit on their throne, but that king serves as a sub-king. And that's most likely what happened here. Mercia, under King Cholwulf II, acquired the fealty of the most powerful kingdom of Wales. It was probably quite a blow, and it's not clear how long the sons of Rodri had to recover from this loss, because we don't know exactly when this fight took place. But however long it was, it wasn't so long that it was forgotten. And the first hints that the winds might be changing probably came in 879, when King Cholwulf II of Mercia either died or was deposed. And then the next year in 880, when Guthrum left Mercia, it was probably becoming all too clear that their arch rivals had been hobbled and that there would be no better time than now to reassert their independence. And thus, we get back to 881, where Mercia was likely in a situation where they needed to muster their army and march on Gwyneth. It was either that or give up any hope at maintaining hegemonic control over their western border. And so, we're told on that year that Mercia invaded Gwyneth. And we're also told that they were under the command of a man that the Welsh sources called Edred Longhair, and whose scholars pretty much universally agree was Athelred of Mercia. So, by 881, Athelred was a figure of some degree of power within Mercia, either as a warlord or as actually the leader of Mercia. And we also know that the dude had apparently some killer flowing locks. Unfortunately, the annals are remarkably tight-lipped as to what happened next. All we know is that the battle took place at Conway, and that they obtained vengeance for Rogery. So Edred took a beating, apparently, and immediately afterwards, we do see the kingdom of Gwyneth exercising its own independent authority. And as for Edred, he appears to have tucked tail and run back to Mercia. But this is where time gets in our way again. The political implications of Mercia's failure to reestablish control over Gwyneth hinges entirely on whether or not Athelred of Mercia was already on the throne, and whether or not he had already submitted to Alfred, and whether or not the treaty between Alfred and Guthrum had already been signed. For example, if Athelred was ruling and independent, that loss could go a long way towards explaining why he submitted to Alfred soon thereafter. I mean, better that than be subject to a vengeful counterattack by the sons of Rodri. Because we're missing the dates for such crucial events, the ways to interpret the results of this battle are legion. For all we know, Athelred could have been bringing war upon Gwyneth under Alfred's orders. Until we figure out how all these events properly fit together, I don't know how we can possibly know for certain what all of this means. But what we do know is that Gwyneth had been unshackled, and it was still powerful, and it was being led by King Anaraud and his brothers. Now, the individual kingdoms of Gwyneth that had been acquired under King Rodri were divided amongst the brothers, though precisely who got what depends on what source you're reading. Rather than everything going to the eldest, as is done in primogeniture, the sources generally agree that the kingdoms were split up in a sort of gavelkind system. However, the brothers do appear to have still cooperated with each other, and judging by Asser's account, Anaraud and his brothers were cut from the same cloth as their father. So soon after throwing off their Mercian overlords, 
the sons of Rodri turned their attention to the south. Already ruling over central and northern Wales, their next target was the southwestern kingdom of Devid, Asser's homeland, and also the kingdom of Brecknock, which was in south-central Wales. And Asser provides us an additional detail, almost as an aside, that's absolutely fascinating. We're told that at some point after the Battle of Conway, the sons of Rodri, the rulers of Gwyneth, formed an alliance with Northumbria. Yeah, you're not having a stroke. Asser says that the Northern Welsh allied themselves with Halfdan's former kingdom. Now, as you know, Halfdan is already dead. He died in Ireland. And the kingdom was now being ruled by Guthfrith. And apparently, he decided to ally himself with the sons of Rodri. Though, we're also told by Asser that the alliance wasn't going that well. And that the sons of Rodri experienced, quote, no good, but rather harm, end quote, from this alliance. Asser doesn't fill us in on what exactly was happening there. And the other sources aren't any help either. But if he's telling the truth, then something pretty interesting was happening in the north and the west. And I can't help but wonder if the Danes were looking to extend their influence into the west. Perhaps they were intending Gwyneth to be a bit of a sub-king rather than an ally. And that accounts for the harm that Asser was speaking of. There's no clear answer as to what was going on. But this whole era feels very much like two superpowers, the West Saxons and the Danes, fighting over the few remaining unaffiliated kingdoms on the island. And Asser wasn't done yet. He also tells us that, despite the loss to Gwyneth at Conway, Mercia wasn't out of the fight. They were simply aiming for smaller and more manageable Western targets. I mean, Gwyneth was the most powerful kingdom in the West. But Glywissing and Gwent? Well, they were significantly smaller. And Asser tells us that Athelred and his Mercians brought violence and tyranny to their lands in short order. So according to Asser, the West was a mosaic of violence and petty conquest, with Mercia and Gwyneth racing to dominate the region. And no mention is made by Asser regarding Alfred's interference in any of this. Instead, all of the blame for the suffering in Wales is laid at the feet of the sons of Rodri and on Athelred of Mercia. But again, we have that issue of timing. If Athelred was acting under Alfred's orders, then the Welsh campaigns could have been Alfred's early attempts at expanding his dominion over the West. And if that's the case, it certainly would explain why the timing of such key events were left out and why Alfred's involvement wasn't stated. I mean, it's not like Alfred would want to tell his Welsh biographer that actually he was behind all the suffering that was inflicted upon his homeland. So instead, rather than focusing on that, the scribes, and Alfred through Asser, decide to tell us about how the Danes were still a threat, and how mighty Alfred wasn't shying away from the fight. And so they tell us in the Chronicle that in 882, King Alfred went out to sea, quote, with a fleet and fought with four ship rovers of the Danes and took two of their ships, wherein all the men were slain and the other two surrendered, but the men were severely cut and wounded, end quote. Well, that certainly is the sort of unambiguous victory that you'd want to tell if you want to give the impression that you're a great war leader. And of course, they give us a very clear date regarding that event. And yet, 
his scribes just happened to leave out the dates and details we'd need to figure out whether or not he was behind Athelred's attacks? And here's where I'm completely torn with this thing. On the one hand, the lawyer in me is shouting, coincidences happen all the time, and you can't build a narrative when you lack all the facts. And you definitely lack facts here. And frankly, lawyer me has a really good point there. Random things happen all the time with no actual meaning behind them, and it's just a quirk of how our brains work that we try and find the pattern. So searching too much for a purpose in all of this could leave me looking like I'm making conspiracy theories about moon landings. And that's never a good look. But on the other hand, Alfred was a student of history, and so we can assume that he knew how previous kingdoms of the Heptarchy had absorbed weaker kingdoms by virtually running a protection racket. And Mercia had just elevated a guy with likely ties to his wife. And that same guy was busy destabilizing Alfred's western neighbors at exactly the time when Alfred needed weakened kingdoms to come under his umbrella so as to allow him to counter the Scandinavian threat from the north and the east. And those same threats also seemed to be looking to destabilize smaller kingdoms and absorb them, like some sort of proto-Cold War. And it wasn't like Alfred was hiding his desire to expand his holdings. He was already calling himself, quote, king over the whole English people, except the part that was under Danish rule, end quote. The guy was pretty open about what his goals were. Oh, and this is going to be a little bit of a spoiler, but several years from now, the kings of those Welsh kingdoms that were attacked by Athelred and the sons of Rogery, yeah, they're going to come begging for Alfred's protection and will want to be brought under his sphere. And that will be a huge boon for his rule, virtually giving him control of all of southern Britain. Except, of course, the part under Danish rule. So something was happening here, and perhaps this is part of what earned him his nickname. The political landscape of Wales had transformed dramatically under the influence of Rogery the Great. The concept of a unified Wales might have been something that existed in the minds of some of the people of the West, but it was in this period that it started to look like a realistic possibility. Rodri hadn't just changed borders. He'd changed minds. And while we may never know if Alfred was behind the violence that was racking Wales, we do know that sitting in his library in Winchester, Alfred was looking to accomplish something similar. He also was looking to change minds. His people had languished in ignorance for far too long. So Alfred would bring them into the light. And in the opinion of your narrator, this is the true source of his greatness. And it's what we'll talk about next episode. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. We're also on Twitter. Find us at British Podcast. And there are plenty of other communities you can join, and you can find links to all of them in the upper right-hand corner of thebritishhistorypodcast.com. Thanks for listening.